Let us pray together. Our Father, today we will read of a people who should have seen Jesus for who he was and who failed or refused to do so. And don't let that be any of us here today, O oh God, not even a little. The great problems of our world are unbelievers who are blind entirely to Jesus and believers who don't fully see him in his glory. Open our eyes to his glories. Stir our hearts with his majesty. Help us to behold our King here in your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we do sometime, we're going to take a number of verses, verses 1 through 17, and go through them to see the shape and flow of them. Then we'll come back and look at them a bit more slowly and closely. So if something makes you, huh, then uh, come back in the weeks to come and we'll look at it a little slower and a little more detail. We're reaching here uh, the culmination of the gospel story, the uh, narration of the life of Christ as Matthew paints it. And this entry into Jerusalem is a focal point in the Gospel of Matthew. As a Jewish man, of course, this isn't Jesus' first trip to Jerusalem. That was a yearly thing for Jewish men. But like all the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Matthew focuses on just this one trip of the adult Jesus to Jerusalem. This is the climax. And not only is it focal, it is very large in the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, literally. Eight of the 28 chapters of Matthew are about this visit. Chapters 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28 are about this week, this visit to Jerusalem and the aftermath of it. That's between a third and a quarter of the whole gospel is this week. So obviously it's a big deal. Matthew, in fact, bookends his gospel with Jerusalem. Have you thought about this? The first chapter is the genealogy and birth of Christ, and then what do we see in the second chapter? We see the Magi rocking Jerusalem, shaking it, troubling it, because they come asking, where is he who's born king of the Jews? That's chapter 2. Now here in chapter 21, we have the king of the Jews coming to Jerusalem, announced as the king of the Jews, and once again, Jerusalem is rocked about Jesus. So, um, despite the hymn we'll all hear at Christmas time, a little town of Bethlehem, which has the stirring words, the joys and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, I would say the joys and fears of all the years are met in Jerusalem in this week. So let us look together now as we see first, Roman numeral one, the king's prophetic approach. The king's prophetic approach. Verses 1 through 9. First, Matthew gives us the preparation for this approach in verses 1 through 5 in two parts as I see it. Firstly, number one, preparation for the writer, verses 1 through 3. Preparation for the writer. We read, and I'm just using the Legacy Standard Bible today. And when they had approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So 
approached, and then we'll see entered in the next section. This is the approach to Jerusalem. And they come to this little village called Bethphage or Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. This is, uh, as the rabbis counted Jerusalem and its environs, this is right on the edge, on the outer edge of the environs of Jerusalem, this little town on the uh, southeast side of the Mount of Olives. Um, Jesus obviously knew some people in this area. We read that some in the other Gospels as well. And this looks like this has been arranged. This is something not necessarily prophetical, but something that Jesus had an understanding with the residents there. So he sends two of his disciples there, uh, arranging for his ride with the instructions that they will find in this town, a donkey tied with a foal, the donkey's child, if you will, the donkey's offspring next to it. And the donkey, Mark tells us, the, the young donkey had never been ridden before. So that's probably why they bring the both of them. They bring the young donkey as well as the mother to calm the young donkey, A, at its first ride, carrying the Messiah, B, going in a crowd so that the, the offspring will be calm and carrying Jesus up to Jerusalem. So they go there, they find it, and the other gospel tells us that uh, indeed they are asked, what are you doing? And they answer as Jesus told them, and they're allowed to bring the donkey and the colt back. So that's the preparation for the writer. Now we see the preparation for the reader in verses 4 and 5. And this took place in order that what was spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. And I say this is preparation for the reader. This is Matthew's note to us. This is so that you and I can understand what's going on here. We can understand what the Lord Jesus is doing and why he engineered this this way. He engineered it to fulfill prophecy. Now, this prophecy that Matthew quotes uh, comes from two texts. Matthew combines two texts. Just a snippet from Isaiah 62, 11. The whole verse reads, Behold, Yahweh has announced to the end of the, uh, of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion. That's the part he snips out. Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You see, that applies very well to Jesus coming to Jerusalem as well. But he just lifts that part and then combines it with Zechariah 9.9. Lord willing, we'll look at them more closely and slowly next week. But Zechariah 9.9 in full reads this way. <clears throat> Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, lowly and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a pack animal. You notice that Matthew doesn't quote all of that. This is not uncommon in how Jesus quotes and fulfills Scripture. The, the phrase that he's righteous and endowed with salvation is not quoted. The idea of him coming and bringing deliverance is not quoted, but the rest is. Now, this verse, the, the late uh, scholar and preacher S. Lewis Johnson, now in glory, he said that those words would make a very perfect statement of the theme of the Gospel of Matthew. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
that's what the whole gospel is about. Behold, your king is coming to you. This is the theme of the gospel of Matthew. Jesus comes as a king here, riding a donkey. Now that, that may have puzzled you. Why, why is he riding a donkey? Why is he not riding a horse? That seems odd. We don't think often of riding donkeys. We do think of riding horses. But that's because we're thinking in modern terms. Now, first of all, a donkey was not an uncommon uh, mode of transportation, particularly for the well-off in those days. Donkeys were costly, and not everybody could ride them. But it wasn't because Jesus needed them physically. They just walked something like a, a hundred miles from Caesarea Philippi. Let me say that again. They just walked something like a hundred miles from Caesarea Philippi. So it wasn't like he was too tired. It was the fulfillment of Scripture. It was the image that this was uh, presenting that Jesus was deliberately engineering to present this image. We're going to remark on that in a second. But that's the meaning of the donkey. The donkey is a mode of transportation. Now, unlike the way we think of it, the horse was actually a war machine. The horse was more like a, a tank or a Humvee or something like that. That was a, a, an animal used for battle. In fact, if you go back and read uh, Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, in verse 10, the donkey's contrasted with the horse. The horse is an animal used in war. This is an animal used in peacetime. Solomon rode donkeys, David rode donkeys, and now the son of David rides a donkey into Jerusalem, uh, <clears throat> symbolizing that this was the theme of his coming. And look at how he quotes Zechariah 9, 9, and Matthew says that he is coming to you uh, lowly. Lowly, he says. That's the Greek word praus. And that's used in two very important verses earlier that actually give us, some, give us some insight here. In Matthew 5, 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is one of the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are high praes, the humble or the gentle or the meek, often translated. Those who do not uh, move forward by force and battle and, and violence, but those who are gentle, who keep their strength under control. They will inherit the earth, he says. And then he says in Matthew 11, verse 29, that we should come to him because he is gentle and lowly in spirit. That same word, praus. He is praus, it says. He says. So the gentle will inherit the earth. He is gentle. And now he comes to Jerusalem gentle. And he indeed will inherit the earth. And those who follow him will inherit the earth with him because they are in him. Because we are his people. He is the one who will conquer and take it. We will inherit it through him. But he's not coming on a, he's not coming on a conquering military visit. He's not coming that way. He's coming as a king, yes, but a king not on a, an engine of war, but on a donkey, lowly, and mounted on a donkey, Matthew says. Now, think about this arrangement. The first thing I want to note is just the fact that Jesus arranged the fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know if anybody would read that and think, wait a minute, that's not right. Are you, you're not supposed to arrange for a fulfillment of prophecy, are you? I mean, does that mean that he arranged all the other fulfillments of prophecy? Well, now, we just would need to calm down and think for a second. How did Jesus arrange to be of the line of Shem? Uh, that Noah blessed as being, blessed be the God of Shem. How did Jesus arrange to be of the line of Abraham, in whose seed all the families of the earth would be blessed? How did he arrange to be a child of Jacob, and specifically a child of the tribe of Judah, 
who was the kingly tribe identified by prophecy. And of the tribe of Judah, how did Jesus arrange to be of the line of David? The kingly line, uh, David to whom was promised that he'd never lack a, a son to sit on his throne. And how did he arrange to be born to a virgin? And we could just go on and on. Uh, his life is a network of fulfillment and prophecies that he could not possibly have arranged. But it is remarkable to us that he does arrange this. He arranges this event, which will very loudly and clearly say that he's coming as a king. Why is that remarkable? Because this is a real change in modus operandi for Jesus. This has not been the way he's been proceeding, is it? Do you recall in Matthew 16, just as one example, when he'd asked, who do you say I am? And Peter confessed him as the Messiah, the son of the living God. What did Jesus say in Matthew 16, 20? Go tell everybody that I'm the Messiah? Quite the opposite. He, said, he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And often he tells people who are healed not to make a big noise about it. And yet here he is deliberately engineering something that would say to everyone, to every Jew who knew his Old Testament at all, this one is coming to us as a king. So yes, why is he doing that? Because he's arranging for the final confrontation. He has said in the past more than once, his time has not come. Now his time has come. And I think we gain some insight, don't we, when we step back and look at the big picture? Because look, here he approaches Jerusalem outwardly admitting that he's coming as Messiah and he's dead inside of a week. So this is why, part of why, it was not so noisily shouted around before because his time had not come, but now his time has come and he's stepping into that. So we've seen the preparation for the writer and the reader. Now we see the completion of this approach in verses 6 through 9. First of all, completion by the crew. Verses 6 and 7 say, The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their garments on them. And literally the Greek text says, And he sat on them. So now I wonder, uh, I am tempted to ask for a show of hands here, but, but I'm, I'm afraid that mine might be the only hand that ends up going up. I wonder how many people ever read this and wondered, so is he sitting on both the donkeys? He's got the two, so is he sitting, does he like sit on one and then go sit on the other? How does that work out? Well, as one commentator remarks, this is not a circus act. He's sitting on the garments on the foal of just one donkey. He's sitting on the foal that had never been read before. He's sitting on the garments that they spread on that foal to act as a saddle for him. So he sits on the foal, the crew, his crew, the two unnamed disciples set this up for him. And we see the completion secondly by the crowd, verses eight and nine. Completion by the crowd. And most of the crowd spread their garments in the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. First, let's consider what they did. What they did is they hailed Jesus as king. That's what this is all about. All of this is symbolic in nature of welcoming 
a dignitary or specifically of welcoming a king. This is making a big deal about a dignitary, and in this case, a king who's coming in. And you say, okay, I've never understood why do they throw their, their clothes in the dirt. That just, I mean, to make it easier for the donkey to walk? I mean, to, to save its little delicate hoofs? No, not that at all. Think of the symbolism. When they throw their clothes in the road and the king rides over their clothes, what does that represent but submission? They are literally putting themselves under his feet. They are literally accepting him as Lord over them. And that's what this depicts. That's what they are doing. Now notice here, things like this have happened before, haven't they, in Jesus' life? There's a a place in John chapter 6 where the multitudes try to carry him off and make him a king. And what does Jesus do? He gets away from there. He doesn't want any part of that. Notice what he does here. What does he do? Nothing. Trick question. Nothing. He accepts it. He lets them do it and rides on. Because remember, he engineered this. So this is very, very different. Something very different is happening here than has happened before. He accepts their their gesture of submission and of acclamation. That's what they did. Now let's look at what they said. What did they say? They said, Hosanna. Now what's that? That is, it could be Hebrew or Aramaic. It could could be either way, so I'll say probably Hebrew. They're they're saying, Hosanna. Now what Hosanna means is save, please. That's what that means. Save, please. It's a prayer. It's a cry for salvation. So, Hoshana to the son of David, I think, is kind of shorthand for we say Hoshana to the son of David. They're crying out to him to save him, to the son of David, which I remind you is a messianic title, son of David. Save now, they say to him. And, and why do they say that? Well, they're quoting They're quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 25. Psalm 118 is is is, uh, part of what is called the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118, which pilgrims sang on their way up to Jerusalem for a festival. So 118 is the last and the longest of these songs of Hallel, and they quote from verse 25. Uh, The Hebrew there is Hoshia-na, but that's an alternate way of saying it, Hoshia-na. Please save, they say, to the son of David. Isn't that interesting? They are taking these words used by the blind men who they'd been telling to shut up just a few minutes earlier, but perhaps seeing this healing, this act of healing, Jesus does in response to the blind men calling on him as son of David. They take up the cry now of son of David. And uh, I think most commentators seem to forget who's part of the crowd now the formerly blind men. <laughs> They've joined the crowd. They're following Jesus. So did, if they cried son of David before, I think all the more lustily now they're calling on him as the son of David with this crowd. Hoshana, save, please, son of David. And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where's that from? Well, you say my Bible has it in large print, so it's got to be a quotation. It is also from Psalm 118. Hoshahna was from verse 25. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is from verse 26. The pilgrims sang this, and now they're singing it in praise of Jesus. And they say again, Hoshahna, please save in the highest. A little um, 
uh, mysterious, enigmatic to see what they mean exactly by that phrase, uh, except perhaps they're, they're, they're asking for that prayer to be heard in the highest, to be heard in heaven by God and his angels, that plea for salvation. So now, uh, let me ask you this question. I'm, I'm warning you because you, you're kind of in one mental mode when you're not talking in another when you're answering questions. What is this all usually called traditionally, this coming of Jesus to, with palm trees and all this? What do we call that usually? We call it the triumphal entry, but let me ask you a, a, what's not a trick question. Has he entered yet? He has not. <laughs> he has not. All of this is happening outside of and leading up to Jerusalem. Are these Jerusalemites who are saying this? They are not. This is the crowd that's come with him, many of them from Galilee, perhaps from other places north of Jerusalem. In fact, we're going to see the reaction of the Jerusalemites in the next verse. And just spoiler alert, you'll see it's very different. When he comes to Jerusalem, they all say, not Hosanna, but who is this? <laughs> so this is not really the triumphal entry. I mean, if you want to call it a good start approach, I suppose. But I don't know that that'll ever catch on. But this is one of those traditional things that doesn't, isn't quite true to the Bible. It's not a triumphal entry. So um, it's a triumphal approach as they are hailing him as the son of David. And one more time, I'll remind you, in calling him a son of David, this is a messianic title. And he is accepting it. He's not arguing with them. He's not telling them to stop. So we've seen the king's prophetic approach in verses 1 through 9. Now we look at the prophet's powerful arrival in verses 10 through 13. The prophet's powerful arrival. And this arrival is depicted in two parts. It actually happens on two days. I'll mention that in a moment. But first of all, we see his arrival in the city in verses 10 and 11. His arrival in the city. And when he had entered Jerusalem, see, he'd just been approaching it heretofore, and when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Now, note how he's seen. First of all, note the Jerusalemites don't know him. They don't recognize him. He's from the north. They're in the south. They're in the big city. He's from a podunk nothing city. Some of them have to have heard about him. We know that the leaders did because we've seen them send representatives up to ask questions and try to, to uh, expose Jesus very, with, with notable lack of success, we might observe. Uh, but they don't know him. They ask who he is. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, now I take it, this is the crowds who've come with him. They're saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So second then, they don't know him. First, they don't know him. Second, they're told he's the prophet. And that I think is the emphasis on this section, Jesus as prophet. The first section emphasizes his kingship. He enters like a king. Now they call him a prophet, and we're going to see that he acts like a prophet in just a moment. But I want to note something else before we get there. They say he's the prophet, and very literally, just a little more literally than the LSB, the Greek text reads this way. This is the prophet, comma, Jesus, comma, the one from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, there's no comma in the Greek text. It's just I think that they're saying three things. This is the prophet, 
That's what he is. This is Jesus. That's who he is. And he's the one from Nazareth of Galilee. That's where he comes from. All of those are very important things. We'll talk about his being a prophet. Hopefully you know who Jesus is. What about that, the one from Nazareth of Galilee? Now this, I'll show you why in a second, but I want you to note first now, as very important, that he's not from, well, where is Jerusalem? It's in Judea. He's not from Judea. He's from north of there. He's from Galilee. He comes from a town called Nothingville. I mean, remember when we studied Matthew 2, that he'll be called a Nazarene? I explained that the point of that is that's, just a, that's, a, that's a podunk town. It's a, it's a nowhere town. Nobody of any significance could possibly come from this little dried-up lemonade stand of a town. It's, it's, it's nothing. To be from Nazareth is, I mean, it's not even being from, what, Lubbock? I mean, it's not, it's, it's not being from anywhere, you know? And, and I apologize if you're from Lubbock. I'm sure you're very proud of it. But uh, I digress, and now I'm going to undigress. Um, he's just from Nothingville to them. So here's what's going on and why it matters. Judea is under what kind of control? Roman control. Rome directly rules Judea through a precept. How about Galilee? It's Herodian. It's under a Herod. It's not part of the direct Roman rule. So now, if somebody coming from Galilee to the capital city, Jerusalem, with messianic display and kingly pretensions, do you think that's a problem? That could be a massive problem, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, seeing everywhere as they do the Roman centurions and the signs of Rome's presence, they know that that is a, potentially a dire threat for somebody to be entering their town with messianic displays and kingly pretensions. So well we might see that they were rocked. Verse, verse 10 says, <clears throat> all the city was stirred. Do you understand now why they were? That word stirred is a Greek verb from which we get the word seismology, seismograph. What's a seismograph measure? Earthquakes. <laughs> so they were quaked. They were shaken. They were violent. I think stirred is a little too weak. They were shaken. They were rocked. That's why I use that word. They were rocked by his coming because it was a threat to them. Uh, and potentially a great threat to them. A Galilean coming up like a king, that's terrifying. Rome might see this as an act of insurrection, and that would be it for them. That would be good night, ladies, for that town if they were hosting an insurrection. In fact, you may remember this is one of the uh, charges that's thrown against him and one of the things that's thrown to Pilate. He says he's king of the Jews. If you're a friend of his, you're not a friend of Caesar, you remember. So this indeed was a big deal. And this rocks Jerusalem, but really this is just the start. His arrival in the city, then next we see his arrival in the temple, verses 12 and 13. His arrival in the temple. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den, a bit more literally a robber's cave. Now this is the king has come to them and they say he's a prophet. And indeed he acts here very much like a prophet. 
the prophets very often preached often and loudly against the religious hypocrisy and formalism and the apostasy of the Jews. And they uh, certainly railed against any of the uncleanness in the temple. Ezekiel does that at great length, at the abominations that were done in the temple by apostate Jews. Well, what, what did prophets do? Chiefly, they preached the word of God, but what did they do in accompanying that preaching? Often, they engaged in symbolic acts, didn't they? You can probably think, if you read your Old Testament, of a number of symbolic acts of Isaiah walking around stripped like an exile for years, of Ezekiel, uh, if I just said Isaiah, I meant to say Isaiah, of Ezekiel lying on his side and playing out the siege of Jerusalem, of Jeremiah and the, uh, the girdle, the belt that he bought, and uh, made, a, made a point out of that, and a great many other symbolic acts. This was not uncommon for prophets, and that's just what Jesus does here. He's already done it by entering on the donkey. That was a symbolic act, and now he does the symbolic act of cleansing the temple, of shutting down business in the temple. This is a symbolic act symbolizing what God is going to do to the corrupt worship of Israel. What God is going to do, did you hear me say that? Jesus is symbolizing what God is going to do to the corrupt uh, worship of the temple. Now, where is he doing this? We read in the temple, so we think, oh yeah, in the temple. Well, it is the temple, but don't think of the temple as just a little building where sacrifice is done. The, the temple in Jerusalem was a massive affair. How big was it? It took up between 33 and 35 acres. That was the temple grounds. And there was a wall around the whole of it. The building where the sacrifices was done was a relatively small thing in the middle of it. But where they were here is what is called the court of the Gentiles, in which were allowed to come Gentiles. And it was a very large area, and this is where business was being conducted. And there were signs basically saying, don't enter beyond this point. You'll have only yourself to blame for your death, basically. We've, we found such signage. So um, Gentiles could go into this area. This is the area where this took place. It took place in the uh, court of the Gentiles. And Mark actually tells us this happened the next day. Matthew telescopes it. He just wants to tell us the things Jesus did in Jerusalem. Mark tells us he came in because he came in at the end of the day when he entered Jerusalem. It was the end of the day. And Mark just says he came in, he looked at the temple, and then he left the city. But Matthew wants to go right on to the next day where he comes into the temple to tell us what he did at the temple. And this is what he did at the temple. He, well, I mean, <laughs> I hope you read this to prepare for today. And as you read this, I mean, how does this strike you? This is the temple of God, run by what tribe? Tribe Levi, the sons of Aaron in the tribe of Levi. And Jesus from the tribe of what? Judah, not even a priestly tribe. He walks in there like a boss, like he owns the place. And he just throws down. He just starts telling them what to do and what not to do. Like he owns the place. And you want to ask the question again, who is this man? Maybe you want to ask, who does he think he is? Except we know exactly who he thinks he is. He was never in any doubt as to who he was. He's God the Son. 
It is, as a matter of fact, his place. It is, as a matter of fact, his house. And they're not using it for the purpose that he designed it for. And so, yes, he has every right to come in and do what he does. Now, they're conducting business, and this seems to be what he's really uh, objecting to. Boy, there's some, I think we may camp out on that when we go through a little more slowly. But he, he, he doesn't particularly single out that they are crooked, though they are. He just singles out the fact that they're doing business in the temple. That's what he primarily objects to. Now, when he calls it, you're making it, he's quoting from Jeremiah uh, chapter 7, and he says, you're making it into a robber's cave. Well, that does suggest that they're not being absolutely uh, perfectly ethical in what they do, which is true. But he just objects to them doing business in the temple, period. Now, why are they in the temple? Obviously, we'll, we'll talk about this a bit more, but I can say very briefly, the money changers were because people came to the temple. Well, Jewish men had to come a few times a year, and this is Passover. It's a big deal. And if they were going to offer their ransom money, they had to have the coinage accepted in the temple, only they came from all around, and they had all kinds of coins. So what's the money changers for? Uh, for changing money. They're for changing money. They've got the acceptable coinage, and so you bring in your, you know, your Houston shekel, and you throw it down, and they'll give you the approved kind for a little bit of interest, a little handling fee, a little shipping and handling there, tacked on. I, I just remember my, one of my sons and I, I used to love walking, watching, was it QVTV or something like that? And they'd have these knife displays and these sword displays, and they're just coolest knives and swords and they'd just be like $19 or something like that these gorgeous looking they'd just be $19 and then as you'd examine a little bit more you'd find it was but $60 shipping and handling <laughs> well you know okay uh, that price is really kind of misleading and same thing here they'll, they'll give you the right kind of money but for a price and that sheep that you brought, oh, look, I found a blemish right there, but I've got one right here that's pre-approved. Be glad to sell that to you for a modest shipping and handling fee. You see, and that's what's going on. But as I say, what really bothers him is that they're doing business in the temple at all. And just notice what he does. He, he, he invites them out for coffee so that he can have a meaningful discussion with them, right? Or he writes them a strongly worded letter. Or he starts a, starts a committee to hold an investigation into business practices. Mm, except not so much. He walks over and he turns the tables upside down. And he tells them to, to get out of there. And they do. Now what does that tell you about Jesus? What does that tell you about his personal presence? It, it, what it tells me is that the medieval paintings of Jesus are probably not accurate. That, that poor, pale, sallow, sunken-cheeked, effeminate lad in those pictures, white lad in those pictures, uh, you just, you'd want to pat his hand and show, give him a chair. You wouldn't want to run away from him in terror. But as he comes up to these people who've made this living for a long time, and he tells them to stop, well, they stop. And basically what he's doing is he's stopping business in the temple, and nobody stops him. What does that tell you about the personal presence of Jesus? No, we don't have any verse telling us about the color of his hair. Or the color, well, we probably know the color of his hair and the color of his eyes and all candor, but, but giving descriptions about him, we don't have that. But this certainly describes him in terms of the impact that he made. So, yes, we see the prophet's powerful arrival in this section. 
Third, then, we see the priest's pointed acts in verses 14 through 16. The priest's pointed acts. And you could, you could shade these two sections. The, his prophetic acts are priestly. His priestly acts are prophetic. But, but I see it as singling out here. Because first of all, in verse 14, we see Jesus specifically helping the humble. In verse 14, he's helping the humble. We read, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Well, this had to be the court of the Gentiles uh, for a reason I'll, I'll give you in just a second. But I remind you, the priest had numerous functions. And not all of them would be exactly what we would think immediately as being a priestly function. And one of them was a, a priest could be a, a sort of health inspector. A health inspector inspecting for what? Well, for instance, leprosy. There's a whole lot of instruction in Leviticus about inspecting a person or a house for leprosy. But it wasn't just leprosy that was an issue for coming into the temple. What else was, was an issue? Well, note down Leviticus 21, verses 18 and 19. Leviticus 21, verses 18 and 19, which says, For no one who has a defect shall come near. A blind man or a lame man, or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand. What are the first two? A blind man or a lame man. What do we read here? Who came to him? The blind and the lame. These are people who could not have been able to come in to offer sacrifice themselves because they are excluded by the Levitical law. And so Jesus, like, like a priest, inspects them and sees what they are. But unlike any priest who has ever lived, he heals them. He makes them qualified. They are no longer blind. They are no longer lame after Jesus has seen to them. So he continues, his healing powers continue unchanged. And he also acts here as a teacher. And this was another role of the priest, Malachi 2.7. Malachi 2.7 says, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So priests were to be able to teach. We see that a number of times in the Old Testament. The Levites had a role to teach in Israel. And indeed, Jesus is here uh, healing and he's teaching. So instead of repelling the blind and the lame, he heals them. And I would note one more thing in contrast to what we just saw. Two words, he heals them for free. The money changers and the sellers of pigeons and whatnot charge for their services. What did Jesus charge for his? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. He was giving it away. He's helping the humble. And letter B, he's humiliating the humbugs. It's a good seasonal word. He's humiliating the humbugs. H-U-M-B-U-G-S. What's a humbug? A humbug is a phony. It's, it's a deception. That's why, parenthetically, Scrooge says humbug. What he means by humbug is it's phony. It's, it's a deception. It's nothing. So they're humbugs. <laughs> and we see him here humiliating the humbugs. So we see, first of all, the humbugs are in, number one, the humbugs are outraged. 
We see the humbug's outrage in verses 15 and 16a. But when the chief priests and scribes, by the way, just the very people who he'd said, he had just said, were going to arrest him, torture him, and have him crucified. He just said that in a previous chapter. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done in the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now just stop the verse there and supposing you'd never read this and supposing all you knew was that for millennia Israel had been awaiting their Messiah. And suppose you knew that here came this one with a perfect pedigree in every sense of the word. His genealogy, his life, his ministry, his teaching, everything lined up and showed that he was exactly that person they've been watching for. So how would you finish that verse if you read, when they saw the marvelous things that that he'd done and the children even recognizing who he was, they did what? Fell down on their knees and worshipped him, right? Fell down on their knees in repentance, pleading for forgiveness, and, and redemption, right? Isn't that, isn't that the, the ending that would make sense? Ah, but we live in a world that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense any better today than it did then. And no, that's not their response at all. Because people are not machines. Because everything goes in through a grid. And that grid is hopelessly bent by sin. I say hopelessly bent by sin. We can't do a thing about that grid. It takes an act of God. So when they see the Messiah doing messianic works and being hailed as Messiah, their response is they're indignant. They're offended. They are in high dudgeon. I think I've used that right. They are very offended that he should do such a thing. Never having done a miracle in their entire lives, they are very offended that he should do such a thing in the temple. They're shocked, shocked that messianic deeds are being done in the temple of God. And so... Uh, I, I, I'm very tempted, and I may just, when we get here, I, I titled the last sermon, What the Blind Men Saw, and I'm tempted to title this sermon, What the Seeing Men Didn't See, <laughs> or What the Really Blind Men Failed to See, because they're seeing it. They saw, look, at that, look at those words one more time. They saw the marvelous things he'd done. We're just too used to those words. We just read over them, oh yeah, and there's another, another gospel verse there. They saw it. Now, there are people today who are saying, oh, if I could just see a real miracle. Yeah, if you could just see a real miracle, nothing would change. You'd come up with an excuse for that too. Absolutely, apart from a work of God. Because they saw, and they had all the Old Testament background we don't have, but they didn't see what they saw. They were indignant. They were offended. What human quality causes indignation? Pride. Pride, the, the uh, luxury seat to hell, pride. They're indignant, and so they don't join in in the children's praise. <laughs> they do not join in in the children's praise. They're offended, and they're given yet another opportunity to believe and to bow down before Messiah, and yet again, they blew it. Perfect opportunity and yet they blew it. They are outraged by the Messiah. And so, number two, they are outed. O-U-T-E-D, they are outed. What do I mean they're outed? What is verse 16b? And Jesus said to them, yes. I just, 
I just have to pause. I just love that. I, I'm sorry versions put a semicolon there. There should just be a period there. <laughs> they're asking him, don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus says, yes. And? Yes, I, I'm, I'm hearing it fine. Why do you ask? Yes, I, I hear it. I hear it absolutely. And seeing that that's all they've got, then he, sla- I mean, he, he gives them a slap that starts with his ankle and comes up and connects with their jawbone. What, what have we seen him say before? Haven't you read? Now that in itself, I mean, to somebody who's supposed to have memorized the whole Hebrew Old Testament, basically. Have you ever read this part of the Old Testament? Ouch, I mean, that is, that's beautiful. But what does he say here? Have you never read? I mean, this is like, because evidently, I guess, I mean, the only thing I can, explanation I can come up with is, you must never have read Psalm 8. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise for yourself? But he's just not being collegial and nuanced and, and delicate at all. He's not being winsome at all. He's being very, very forceful. He's being very humbling. He's attacking their pride with, with sledgehammers. Have you never read Psalm 8? Because I can only think you never read it, because if you ever had read it, you'd be looking at this and seeing a fulfillment of Psalm 8, where we read that it's out of the mouths of just such children that God perfects strength, particularly here praise. This is the Hebrew word says strength. The Septuagint translates it into praise. Praise is strength. And that's coming out of the mouths of these children. So blind men call him son of David. Children call him son of David. And the religious leaders are offended. Oh my so um, they are outraged, and now they are outed. So number four, we are then shown Messiah's portentous absence. Messiah's portentous absence. Well, meaning what? What, what did you notice? We've seen him as king and priest and prophet. And who is it who combines the offices of king and priest and prophet. That's Messiah. That's Jesus. That's what Messiah means. He is the anointed one who in his one person is prophet, priest, and king. Uh, And so we've seen him that way, and it is as such, as the Messiah, that he now leaves. Verse 17, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So let's talk about the present, present in, in terms of the story. What is it that they're seeing? Well, they're seeing that Jesus go out very decisively. Know what I mean? What I mean, he goes out decisively. This is something that you, you need to see the Greek text to see it, to see how, how Matthew is emphasizing it. First of all, the word for leaving them. There are many, many ways that Matthew could have said that he went out or he left or he, he you know, there's various ways of saying that. He chose an uncommon word that really has the idea of abandoning. I mean, to, 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 to say storm out is, is too strong, but it's the idea, I'm not just changing positions, I am leaving you. <laughs> I am walking away from you. And he's walking away from the city. 
And in addition to that, the word out occurs two more times. You just can't see it in English. Let me give you an extremely uh, literal translation of the Greek text. And abandoning them, he went out, outside of the city. You hear that? The verb went out is exerchomai, which means ex is to go, is out. Ex is out. Erchomai is just go. So exerchomai means go out. And then he adds exo, outside. So he, he abandons them going out, outside of the city. He is leaving the city. That's the idea. And he's emphasizing that. Why is he emphasizing that? Because of the picture that it paints. Letter B, the picture. What's the picture? Well, when we go over this more slowly, I'll show you something in the book of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel sees a prophetic vision where he sees the glory of Yahweh over the uh, Ark of the Covenant, where it should be. But then by stages, he sees it move. And he sees it move eventually to the gates of the temple. And then ultimately he sees it where? Does anybody remember where he finally sees it? No. <laughs> on the Mount of Olives. It ends up on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives? Where did Jesus just come from? He reversed it. He came from the Mount of Olives and went into the city and into the temple. And what's happening when Jesus does that? Well, he's the glory of the Lord. He is the Messiah. He's God the Son. And so God, who had left the temple because of the apostasies and the wickedness and the hard-headed, stubborn pride of Israel, that glory had left the temple and the people. And it was gone but now, in a, in a fashion, it returns with the son of David, God the Son, entering the city from the Mount of Olives and coming in and eventually going into, into the temple. But what's he greeted with? Is he greeted with a repentant people who are ready, who are prepared, who've been reading the Word of God and preparing for the coming of Messiah by repentance and faith and who are ready to welcome him as who he is in repentant faith? No, not at all. He's, he's the same people that the, uh, just different forms of sins perhaps, but the same people that the glory of God had left before are the same people. And so the Messiah comes and they are indignant at him. They are offended at him for being a Messiah. And uh, the crowds, perhaps different crowds, will be shouting away with him, away with him, crucify him in just a few days. So, this is a sad picture. They had their opportunity. They had yet another opportunity. Well, they had such an opportunity as they'd never had before. It's God the Son literally standing there in sandals right in front of them. And they did not respond in repentant faith. So when they rejected Jesus, they rejected God. Uh, and What's the consequence? Are there any consequences to that? To, to rejecting Messiah in person? I hope you haven't put your pens down. I'm not done preaching yet. No. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39? He's, he's just talked to, about these religious hypocrites. And in Matthew 23, 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very thing that the crowds had just been saying, but the leaders and the people of Jerusalem rejected. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, much of the Old Testament warn Israel vividly of the consequences of spurning God and His Word, and here they spurn God incarnate. And yes, there will be consequences, and there have been 2,000 years of consequences, and they are ongoing from a people still proudly unrepentant, rejecting of their Messiah. This pride is a deadly, deadly thing. It takes a supernatural hand to break it and to free us from it. So, who came to Jerusalem? Well, there's no doubt. Jesus came to Jerusalem. Jesus, the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus, the Messiah. Do you think they knew it when he came? Yes, they did. Did it cause a stir for him to come? Oh, yes, the, the king rocked Jerusalem right down to its very foundations. This seems very obvious. Well, then here's something that apparently is not very obvious to Christians. This is the rule of when Jesus comes into a place. When Jesus comes into a place, or when Jesus comes into a person, he rocks it right down to its foundation. And there are changes, dramatic changes. Because look, and again, to some of you this seems very simple, but to to many it evidently is not simple at all. When Jesus comes, all of Jesus comes. All of his glorious person and all of his magnificent offices come. Jesus comes or he doesn't come. All of Jesus comes or none of Jesus comes. And there's been this absurd idea in recent decades that you can pick and choose how much of Jesus you get. You can just believe in Jesus the Savior, but you can reject Jesus the Lord and Jesus the Messiah. Decide about that uh, later down the road as if Jesus will bring his cross in but check his crown at the door or something like that. And that is just a delusive lie that I'm sure has sent many to hell with false confidence. Jesus comes in or he doesn't come in. And he shakes the place he comes in Uh, or he hasn't come in. And so if you were to look at Jerusalem and see no effect, you'd think that Jesus apparently has not come in yet. And so when you see a person's life, even if that person insists he's a Christian because he agrees with a couple of propositions, a couple of ideas, but he insists he's a Christian, but his life shows no presence of Jesus. Jesus has not come in in his fullness and lordship and and his glory. It's not been shaken. And Jesus shows nothing in the person's life. He loves what the world loves. He does what the world does. He's interested in what the world's interested in. Look, I see no sign that Jesus has come in. Well, there's probably a very simple explanation for that. Jesus has not come in. Because when he comes in, all of him come in. And so I say to you, as I would have to say to lots of people in, in Texas, which is one of the part of the Bible belt, right? Do you know this Jesus? Not fake Jesus, but the real Jesus, the Jesus we're learning about from the Gospels. Is your whole life shaken by him? Or does your life look like he never came in? Well, if, if so, if your life looks like he never came in, then the odds are he likely never came in. And so, like Israel, you are being presented with yet another opportunity in Jesus being preached to you right here, right now. And if so, 
then don't be as blind and foolish as Israel was, who presented with their opportunity, squandered it to their own destruction. Oh, God help you, don't let that be you. Now could be the day of salvation. Turn to Christ in repentant faith. Humble yourself before him. Call on the real Jesus to be your real Savior and your real Lord. And he still is mighty to save. Mighty to save. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the spotlight it casts on your glorious, marvelous, magnificent Son. And we thank you for the great salvation that he has wrought and that is preached. And uh, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? I pray for the work of the Spirit of God and those who came in not knowing the Lord Jesus, that they will now be exposed by that work, by your word, and see their desperate need of him and will go flying to him for salvation. And I pray for those of us whose eyesight has been become dim and distracted by the shiny objects and glittering baubles of the world that we will see our need to repent of those nothings, to uh, forsake the love of the world, and to love Jesus afresh, to come to you in fresh devotion and fresh embrace of who you are in your fullness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.